welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And Merry Christmas! I don't know. It's our Christmas episode, right? It's Christmas uh, week. We're talking about a bunch of Christmas movies today, right? Yeah, happy yeah. Honda days. Have a lovely <laughs> Toyota-thon. May you all be blessed this December to remember. Man, if we get that Lexus sponsorship, that would really set us over the edge. That would quit my day job. I would not work. <laughs> we were aiming too low at Tubi. We need to go for the people that advertise on Tubi. That's our next uh, target. Oh, man, you're right. Well, this is a podcast where we talk about movies every week. Has anybody been watching any movies that they want to talk about? Christmas or otherwise? So Christmas-wise, I recently watched Nightmare Before Christmas with a seven-year-old who it was his first viewing. So that was kind of cute and fun. And I realized part of the way through that I had not seen this movie except like on VHS. So... You know, I kind of like turned to Thomas and I was like, wait, is this like a digital like remaster or has it always looked this good? And Thomas was like, yeah, it's always looked this good. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was nice. Um, it's always a delightful watch. You know, I, I know it's gotten like ruined by Hot Topic and Mall Goths and all of that, but it's still really good. I think one of the few ways to make Christmas tolerable is to bring a little Halloween into it. Yeah, <laughs> to exactly. Like, sort of like cut that sweetness a little bit. I mean, even in the song, there'll be scary ghost stories. Like, you know, you gotta be spooky to get Christmas. And then, to get into swamp books for a bit, I started reading The Discovery of Witches, the All Souls trilogy. So I started reading that. And I'm about a quarter away that, and I really enjoy it. So I was like, oh, why don't I try watching the show? And the show changes enough that I'm really into it. But my one thing is uh, the male lead, they casted Matthew Good. And as we on the Swamplix people vibe know him as the creepy yet charming uncle in Stoker. In Stoker, yeah. And I was like, I don't know, like... This just makes him super creepy, and, like, in the book, he and, like, the main character, like, fall in love, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to believe this. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to believe this. He's too creepy. But I watched, like, the first three episodes. I'm into it. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much been my viewing, give or take. Who else has been watching some stuff? I sure have. I want to start off with something that I forgot to talk about last time, which was a horrible horror movie that i started but did not finish on tubi for a very long time and i i just want to issue this as a warning to anyone out there who might be tempted it's called don't hang up from 2016 starring a bunch of um former disney kids well not a bunch a couple greg sulkin and garrett clayton who were i guess you know disney kids in the time sort of post any of our viewing of it and honestly even post like when my goddaughter was young enough to watch it, like I used to watch things with her, like Good Luck Charlie, that were long after my time. But I guess these kids are from like original movies that came out after that and The Wizards of Waverly Place, which is, I guess, where Sonia Gomez got her start. Uh, it's not very good. It's about these like prank callers who record videos of them making prank calls to people. And then one day someone decides to get revenge. So it's like a revenge slasher. But the characters aren't very interesting. And I kept thinking about how there was um, a How Did This Get Made episode about Money Plane, where June Diane Raphael kept saying, I did not appreciate hearing Kelsey Grammer curse in this trying time. And I got to tell <laughs> you, I also did not appreciate seeing like, Disney twunks of yester of recent yesteryear saying the F word. It didn't feel good to me. Didn't like it. Not going to give it a recommendation. Hilariously, Money Plane was the last movie I could not finish <laughs> that I started and bailed like a minute into it. I was like, I am not feeling this vibe. I actually was curious enough about who the killer might be to eventually go back and finish it. Like I started this months ago and I finished it like last week, but I just want to give you the heads up. The movie Don't Hang Up, Don't uh, Click on It. Other than that, though, I guess everything else that I've watched recently was great. 
Uh, last night I watched In the Earth, which was a yeah. recommendation from you, Brandon. So I'm curious good. about your reaction because it is very divisive. So good. Uh, <laughs> Allie, your thoughts are that it's great. Okay. Yeah. That's so good. Brandon. I also loved it. I, I thought it was a great encapsulation of COVID brain. <laughs> like a very like uh, good snapshot of the terrible mental place everyone is in right now. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was good. I didn't think that it was great. I don't think it's in my top five this year so far, um, but it's in my top 10. I enjoyed it. I really liked the actors. I really liked, um, I guess, and and maybe this is on me, uh, because when you initially described it to us, Brandon, it was like, uh, you know, you mentioned that it was about two people dealing with sort of a plague, and, and you did mention the connections to COVID, but you specifically mentioned the lady playing synthesizer in the woods. Yeah, you did it play up the synthesizer so... in the woods, but... So long totally for her to it. show up. Yeah, it's a long journey to get to her. And I just kept thinking, like, is this the movie that I'm remembering? Is this the one that he told me about? Is this the one with the lady playing the synthesizer in the woods? I guess it could be the doctor that they haven't met. But it's like past the halfway point before she enters the film as a character and not just like someone who's discussed off screen. So I guess maybe I just built myself up too much. Assuming that it was going to be more about her and her viewpoint. But, you know, it was fine. I didn't dislike it. I thought the performances were great. I thought that the fear was great. I think that it could have been tightened up a little. I feel like they spent a really long time being held captive, (laughs) much longer than was necessary to communicate the point of what was happening. But, you know, it's not going to get a discommendation for me. It's, you know, I enjoyed it. I, uh, good. It's currently right now, you know, you called my system crazy before, but look who's crazy now. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it a 3.6 because we give, we give only half points on the website, but I give very specific percentage points or decimal points whenever I do mine so that I kind of have a more at least I can convince myself at the end of the year that it's a more scientific way of ranking them instead of just being like, God, I gave four movies, four stars this year and it's been six months since I watched one of them. So how am I supposed to figure it out? So for me, it makes more logical sense. I've absolved myself from like finding new stuff at this point in the year. And I'm only rewatching stuff like that where I'm like, okay, these three, four star movies, I have no idea which one I liked more at this point. So I'm like rewatching stuff I haven't seen in like six, seven months. And In the Earth was one of them. I rewatched it recently. One funny thing, I think, between the two people, the axe-wielding maniac that holds them captive, and then the synthesizer lady who plays music with trees. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think they're kind of a funny encapsulation of the scientific logic versus like mysticism debates that you and I have a lot on this show. Huh, okay. Like they're both like kind of arguing for the movie to go in one of those two directions. Like either she's like scientifically communicating with nature or he's sort of like religiously communicating with nature. Right. And they're both like arguing for their own approach. But they're kind of working together though. Yeah, they're in cahoots. I think they kind of hold that back as like a reveal for a while, but ultimately they're both way too deep into their hobbies <laughs> and, uh, being isolated by the virus has not been good for their mental health which is why i think of it as like a covid brain movie yeah and i think that that's valid i feel like anytime somebody isolates themselves and then does a lot of photography it's bad news just based on movies those darkroom chemicals are really like warping his brain i just want to let anyone listening know and reiterate once again that the title of the movie we are talking about is In the Earth. It's not Gaia, which will <laughs> pop up for you probably on Hulu before you see In the Earth. Have you seen Gaia? No, it seems like they are very similar, right? At least theoretically. No, it's it's more than that. It's like the two research scientists are in the woods and they suffer a foot injury and are captive what? by eco-terrorists who are communicating directly to mother nature and like sacrificing people to her and everyone is going insane because there are psychedelic mushroom spores in the air that are keeping them in that area and mutating their bodies it's like the exact same what are the chances (laughs) that's why i had to text you last night and be like what is the name (laughs) of that movie because hulu recommended gaia to me and it made me remember that conversation i watched the trailer and i was like 
God, I don't see anything about synthesizers in this. And then you sent the trailer for in. Or you, you reminded me that it was in the earth, and I watched the trailer for that, and I was like, God, it doesn't mention synthesizers in this either. But I'm gonna just trust. <laughs> I was real hung up on the synthesizers. I was real hung up on it. I I might give Gaia a try. And then I watched two uh, Christmas horror movies or thriller movies that I just sent copy to you today about Brandon, and you already posted Deadly Games. Um, and of course, since these come out, you know, a couple of days after we record, listeners can probably also read uh, a nasty piece of work, which is an Into the Dark installment, which for the purposes of, of this, I've treated as its its own short fi- or its own film, which we've done before when we talked about Masters of Horror. Generally, if it's an anthology series and they are of film length and they're explicitly marketed as films, we generally treat them that way. Did either of you ever watch any of the Into the Dark at all? I saw The Treehouse. Okay, interesting. The only one that drew my attention was the Sophia to Call uh, New Year, New You, but I never actually watched it. It just sounded cool. Oh, that one was great. And that one was the one that actually made it onto one of my best of the year lists at one point. I think it might have been... 2018. I, I mentioned it in the in the review of this. This one has Dustin Milligan and Julian Sands, who, of course, listeners will remember uh, as the Phantom of the Opera from the worst Phantom of the Opera movie ever made, the Dario Argento version, which I will go to my grave hating and considering a crime against humanity. I don't really have a lot to say about it. It's sort of a Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf type movie played up for Christmas time, where instead of it taking place sort of in the academic world, it instead place, takes place in the business world, where a character is trying to convince his employer that he is deserving of this promotion after the entire business is denied a Christmas bonus. And I sort of go into my thoughts about the relatability of the characters within it in my review, which you can read now if you're listening to this. And finally, the last thing that I watched is, of course, on Friday, we did our annual viewing of A Muppet Christmas Carol, which I once again say is my favorite version of the Christmas Carol. It contains my favorite Christmas Carol, by which I mean my favorite Christmas song, which is It Feels Like Christmas. Yes. Uh, and I also think special mention should go to One More Sleep Till Christmas. I also love that one. And while uh, the ghost of Christmas present is ta- standing in the town square with Michael Caine, who is continuing to take it deadly fucking seriously, looking into the dead eyes of these Muppets like he's talking to real people. I love it. Whenever the they're singing, you know, uh, wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. I said, oh, you know, I think this is my favorite Christmas carol, meaning my favorite Christmas song. And Kat said, you say that every year. I can assure you, it is your favorite. You don't just say <laughs> that. You say that every year when we watch this, when we get to this scene. And I was like, well, she's not wrong. So once again, <laughs> a tip of my hat to you, a Muppet Christmas carol. I once again laughed. I once again cried, as I do every year because we watch it on VHS. We fast forward yes. through that song that Belle sings on the bridge. It's like such a bad song, but at the same time, the cut without it, you're just kind of like, wait, what just happened? Yeah, uh, we so fast weird. forward through it. Uh, so we know that it happens. And it's it's so long. It's so long that when you're fast forwarding it on a VCR... You still have to watch the whole thing play out, even if it's in like five times speed yeah. or four times speed. And God, they're so, even at four and five times speed, they're so motionless. Like there's mm-hmm. just no energy to it at all. It's lifeless. I know that like contemporary critics of the Muppet Christmas Carol, like now, current ones, they often talk about the necessity of the song, how important it is how there was like some outcry when the version that initially went up on Disney plus didn't have the song. Frankly, I think it's better without it. It's better without it. Except like the plot moves weird. That's my only thing is like they could keep some parts in without like having the song. Anyway, the song's not good. Too long. Not not good. Look, the thing is even bless us all. 
is sort of a downer and it sort of takes a while and it's a real slog to get through. But there are Muppets in it. Yeah, exactly. Right? There's so no it's Muppets. like, <laughs> there's no Muppets in Belle's song. It's just like, oh, what is happening? Oh, why is this going on? Why do we care? Yeah. <laughs> why do we care? You know? Anyway, that's my thoughts on the Muppet Christmas Carol. I think it's the best Christmas Carol. I think it has the best Christmas song. I still watch it every year. Have you seen it. the 1977 like musical version though? I'm just of, curious of uh, Christmas no. Carol. Okay, because there's a song in it that's like amazing, and it's called "I Hate People," and I think about that whenever I see like crazy Christmas crowds. <laughs> it's got really good songs in it. I'm just gonna say it. It's a good version. Second favorite version. Cat has a very high opinion of the recent Guy Pierce one. I'm a big fan of Scrooged myself. Scrooge is awesome. Scrooge is good. Great. Yeah. I just, I love a Muppet. I, I discovered yeah. this week that my erstwhile roommate and one of my dearest, or I guess after this realization, possibly former dearest friends, uh, hates the Muppets. And, you what? know, I had a roommate before him many years ago who was like a pathological liar and a crazy person <gasps> who also was very upfront and open about the fact that uh, they hated both Princess Bride and the Muppets. Or, and I was like, what me? is wrong with you? You don't like Joy? <laughs> I don't I don't understand how you could not like the Muppets. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I don't get it. They're the Muppets. Like, it's, they're great. I guess that he didn't grow up with them, but mm-hmm. so? But still. Uh, I just looked it up. I have seen the Guy Pierce version. It was like weirdly intense. <laughs> it was one of those versions I watched and I was like, this is made for no one but me who watches too many versions of A Christmas Carol each year. <laughs> and Kat, apparently. Yeah. So I will we, let Kat will know the, uh, your thoughts. Yeah, it's weirdly intense. And like, I was like, I don't know how to feel about this one. It goes some real dark places. There's like a mine cave in and like a factory fire. It gets wild, y'all. It's dark. <laughs> The last thing that I want to say about the Muppets, though, is it's a real shame that they're owned by Disney now because Disney cannot get along with the Puppeteers Union because the Disney company has always and will always be a money-making, money-printing machine that chews people up and spits them out. They refuse to negotiate with the union, and as a result, we'll probably never see Muppets again, at least not in our lifetimes it does seem like they are going to, moving forward, focus more on media that they can make with that intellectual property that does not involve paying artists what they deserve. So we may not see the like of A Muppet Christmas Carol ever again, but um, Brandon, what have you been watching? Well, like I said, I've absolved myself from catching up with best of the year stuff at this point. I'm like, I don't care if I see anything new. Um, that I really like, fine, but I'm not going to, like, seek out stuff and pay, like, $7 a movie for, like, films that haven't hit a streaming platform for free yet, or, you know, all that, like, hair-pulling I do the last couple weeks of the year, I'm going to enjoy myself instead. Uh, and what I've been doing is hitting shuffle on that old Letterboxd watch list and watching a bunch of genre films that I've never seen before from older years than 2021. The most Christmassy one I watched was an adaptation of Turn of the Screw, the Henry James novel. I watched The Innocents from 1961. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, yeah. I love that one. Never seen it before. It's, I guess it's Christmassy in the fact that it is a movie about ghosts. And uh, <laughs> I don't like Christmas content in general, but I have been trying to shift my attitude towards the holiday in the last few years by celebrating Yule instead. And that usually amounts to us trading ghost stories and presents on Christmas Eve and eating a nice meal, which that's lovely. I can do that all the time. <laughs> it's just like the regular Christmas stuff, like weighs in my heart. So the innocence, this is like Yuletide viewing for me. I don't know what to say about it other than it's very good. Like for its time, it's incredibly bold. Yeah. I mean, Truman Capote helped write it. 
Truman Capote specifically was hired to make the script more ambiguous about whether the uh, governess was out of her mind or if the children were possessed by horny ghosts. (laughs) uh, I think for 1961, that is incredibly bold. Yeah. And I appreciate it even more because I watched the most recent not beloved adaptation of it from two years ago, The Turning, which had uh, Brooklyn Prince and Finn Wolfhard as the kids. Oh, right. It was very bad. And only enhanced everything I loved about the innocence because, you know, they aged up the Finn Wolfhard character. So no longer is the kid, no longer is it like supernatural that a young child would be hitting on his adult governess. It's just like, oh yeah, teens are gross and will hit on adult authority figures to like disarm them. Like that's not scary. That's just like a matter of course. And also the way they hired Truman Capote to make the 1961 version like ambiguous. This one like leans really hard into the ghost being real and then saves that question of ambiguity for like this like last minute twist that's like very insulting and just cheap and then at the end of it there's this really beautiful shot under the end credits (laughs) and it's like the only moment of like beautiful imagery in the entire movie and it's just funny to me is like after the ending already pissed off the entire audience to picture this like lone beautiful image playing to an empty theater (laughs) was like uh very amusing uh, because, you know, by contrast, the innocence on top of being like so narratively and thematically daring um, is also just like gorgeous photography. Like there's yeah. all these like black voids with like just an isolated image of like praying hands or a lot of transparent overlaying where the ghosts appear. The ghosts in the windows the just like freaked me out the first time I watched it. I was like, oh, my God. It's so gorgeously staged and so brutal and cold. Yeah. And- I wasn't sure I was going to love it as much as it's praised to be this like masterpiece. Um, Particularly, I just watched uh, The Haunting for the first time like a year ago. And I thought early on, like, oh, these are so similar. I'm already going to have my like, that's another one of my favorites. Yeah, (laughs) they're both great. And they're both different enough that I don't know. They're like psychosexual discomforts and Uh all that like beautiful art photography. They're not doing the same thing. They're doing two completely different things parallel to each other they're great yeah did you see bly manor no uh cc was watching it around the same time we watched both of these movies um so i was in the room for several episodes of it but i don't really watch a lot of tv these days like fair enough usually she watches tv and i'll work on website stuff while it's playing in the background but I, I did notice a lot of direct homages to the way things are staged in the innocence that had to be beyond just being adaptations of the same novel like obviously it was visually referencing the movie as well yeah uh i think that it was a a great retelling of that turn of the screw story and i just was curious about your thoughts on it if you had seen it but it definitely looks better than the turning (laughs) (laughs) from what i saw it was definitely better than the uh, recent one also on netflix i watched streets of fire from 1984 uh the walter hill film i'm not sure if y'all have seen that no i I see people talk about it sometimes on various film sections of the internet, like, you know, film theorists. And I always think that they're talking about that movie that we watched for movie of the month. Trouble in mind. Yes. The one with Genevieve Bujold. As <laughs> yes, the, the one where Divine owner. plays a, a male gangster. Yes. I always think that that is Streets of Fire, and I don't know why. They're very similar films. Um, and I was thinking okay. about Trouble in Mind a lot while watching this as well. In in the way that they both like kind of sleaze up 1950s noir, like late period noir into like 1980s music video aesthetics. So like there's like kind of this like new wave sheen on both of those films. And they're doing kind of like old fashioned crime pictures. Streets of Fire is a little more fun, I think, than Trouble in Mind. It, it's got this like teenage delinquent energy to it. Because the antagonists are all these, like, biker gangs that are, like, roaming around and just, like, causing shit. And the thing I, like, actually most appreciated about it was that the biker gangs are the exact kind of, like, Marlon Brando, Leather Daddy, like, image that you're used to. Um, But I feel like you've seen that threat so many times on the screen that it's kind of defanged. Like, they look scarier and tougher than they actually are. But in this movie, they're, like stripping people nude in the street and like dragging them behind their bikes on chains and like just beating people up and smashing windows. And they're like legitimately terrifying. And there's this whole mission where they like kidnap a famous singer 
And these people like go to rescue her from the biker gang's lair. And they just go like further and further into this like crime world that becomes seedier and seedier the more they sink into it. And the whole thing has this propulsive drum beat. Like it just never stops trying to be visually exciting. The only thing that kind of drags it down is that the lead actor, his name's Michael Pere, is just a charisma vacuum. He just mumbles the entire time like Sylvester Stallone. He's like generically handsome, but has no personality whatsoever. And it's so frustrating because every other casting choice is so exciting. Like the main biker guy who kidnapped the singer is Willem Dafoe in his like early 80s, like sex goblin period. Uh, He looks so good in those like leather daddy outfits. Also, the singer herself (laughs) is Diane Lane. And she's dressed exactly like her character in Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which is a movie I love. So it's wonderful to see her in the same mode here. Just like kind of 80s up a little bit. The tough guy who hires the vigilante to go rescue the singer is Rick Moranis playing a total asshole, (laughs) which is something I guess I'd never seen him do before. He's like a fucking bully in this movie and he's really funny at it. So like all the casting choices all the way down are like so exciting. And they have this like total drip of a lead actor that kind of like, I don't know, sinks the movie a little bit, but it, it is high style and a lot of fun, uh, like retro fifties teen delinquent pictures, uh, made scary and violent and sexy for the eighties. Uh, and I can see why it has a lot of like cult fans, especially if you saw it as like a teenager in it's VHS days, I, I, I get the appeal. It's also leaving Netflix, I think, on December 31st, if you wanted to see it, where it's easy to access in high definition. And then the other one I watched in kind of low definition uh, for free on YouTube, and it's one that it does not have as big of a cult following as The Innocence or Streets of Fire, but I think kind of deserves to be talked about in the same breath. Uh, it's called The Hellstrom Chronicle from 1971. It is a mockumentary that somehow won the Oscar for best documentary feature in 1972, even though it is total bullshit and a parody. Uh, I don't understand how it possibly even qualified for this category, (laughs) but uh, basically it's narrated by this Dr. Nils Hellstrom, PhD, who is a fictional character played by an actor who is credited in the final credits of the film. Um, and he hosts this like David Attenborough style nature documentary about insects. And it has all the like nature footage from like academic institutions that are like really beautiful, like high res photography of like insects doing their thing. But it's narrated like an exploitation picture with these like very over the top Edwardian monologues about how insects are going to take over the earth and about how the invisible enemy is more powerful than the visible one. And like, just how like bugs are like grotesque robots with like, no, I feel this is sounding morals so getting familiar. in their way. It's so good. I think you would love it. Honestly, uh, <laughs> I could see boomer hating it because I think you have problems when like things that are obviously untrue are presented as fact. And this is definitely like, fake pseudoscience bullshit presented as if it's a documentary but as a like late night paranoia thing like trying to scare you about how freaky insects are while showing you like nature footage of insects it is so good Um, (laughs) it's really fun and also i think kind of like a premonition of the way that like documentary filmmaking has gone on cable television in particular like if you watch a lot of like discovery channel um, or like history channel kind of stuff. They try to do this like ominous freaking you out pseudoscience, like uh, sure narration. Do. And uh, this is doing it, but is like obviously having fun with it. And is like so obviously bullshit that I, I kind of want to give it a pass. <laughs> like, I think it's okay uh, that it does this because it's so entertaining and it's so absurd to see a David Attenborough documentary filter through like grindhouse exploitation aesthetics. I do think, Allie, I, th- I think if you have not seen it, um, you would really enjoy it. And if you have seen it, I think you'd enjoy revisiting it. Yeah, it's like really familiar. Like, I feel like I was walking through a room while somebody was watching this at some point. Like the quote that you gave, I was like, I feel like I know this. Um, so I'm going to have to <laughs> seek it out on the YouTubes. It's so deliciously overwritten. Like if you want to watch something where someone just like 
says whatever bullshit thing that comes to mind for 90 minutes uh, while like uh, getting increasingly paranoid about insects. Um, I, I really enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, yeah, that sounds like my sort of thing. <laughs> Well, dear listeners, we did something a little bit different this week. Normally, we recommend movies to one another that the recommender has seen or maybe others have seen that we're going to rewatch together. But because I was captivated by the re-release trailer for the 1979 science fiction horror film The Visitor, directed by Giulio Paradisi, uh, I decided to go ahead and make that my pick and we could all watch it together. The movie is about a conflict between two extraterrestrial beings and, more correctly, about the battles between the descendants of the evil being, uh, who is basically Satan, although they give him a name like Zatan or, or Shaitan. Satin. 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 As well as the forces that uh, follow Yahweh which they don't even try to change a little bit. Um, (laughs) And so Satine has long since been defeated. However, his lineage continues. So there's always the possibility that Satine could rise again if some distant descendant of his were to somehow rise to power. And we have John Huston as the sort of disciple of Yahweh who comes to stop this girl from becoming the new Antichrist and claiming this world. Uh, Her mother is the girlfriend of Lance Henriksen, who is in this movie as the man who owns (laughs) a basketball team. Who is in this movie? (laughs) He certainly is. This cast is wild. It sure is. Peckinpah is in it. John Houston is in it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, Kareem, yeah, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Abdul-Jabbar as a character named Kareem who plays basketball for Lance Henriksen's <laughs> team. It's a movie about this girl who has powers, both natural and supernatural, which when it first started, I was like, what are what are natural superpowers? But as it turns out, uh, she's like the pinnacle of physical fitness. She's a great gymnast. She's like an ice dancing warrior. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's fascinating. I-, I think that that is as concise as you can explain it to view. What did y'all think? I mean, fascinating is the right word for this movie. It seems like really bizarre Christian themes going on. And then at the same time, like, yeah, the mom has an abortion and it's like, no big deal. Um, <laughs> I was like, what? In fact, the representative of Yahweh is like, oh, no, that's a good thing that happened. That was great. Good job. Nice work. And then, you know, there's this, like, weird blue-eyed Jesus. Like, <laughs> I feel like they dropped the Christian themes, like, pretty early. Like, the idea that, like, Satan fell from the heavens, they interpret that as, like, space. Like, he fell from outer space to Earth. And then... There's obviously like a little bit of the ripoff of the Omen going on early on, right? but that's like one of the 30 movies in this plot. That's a conservative <laughs> It's got estimate. real life force energy where it just switches tracks every like two scenes and becomes a different movie entirely. I wish I could ice dance like that girl. I wish She's I had a so trained good. Falcon. I was a little bit confused by that at first because I thought that what they were saying at the beginning was that Satine had been defeated by Yahweh's I guess it was a Kestrel. Sorry, I was like saying last night, I was like, that's not a falcon. What is it? It's not an osprey. Yeah, it's a Kestrel. It's a Kestrel. But then somehow in the middle of the movie, it sometimes changes to a hawk. I don't know. Very confused. (laughs) At one point late in the movie, 
a positive army of pigeons, which I guess we're supposed to uh, perceive yes. as doves, appears, and some of them sometimes turn into plastic birds. So pigeons on screen so. are rock doves. Excuse me, pigeons are doves. Oh wow! <laughs> Pardon me. Sorry, I like pigeons. But yeah, the birds in this movie—I don't know—fascinated. I want to train Kestrel. Um, also, for a good portion of this movie, I did not think that this girl was like a frightening demon child. I was like, I don't know. All the people around her kind of suck. <laughs> it wasn't until like very late on in the movie I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, she's she, she is reminds dangerous. me of the little shit from Impulse. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. It's like, well, she's being a total turd, but everyone else in her life is like kind of miserable anyway, so it's kind of fun. That uh, she's calling a cop a pedophile, so he gets off her case. That scene, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I love this child. You can also tell the actor had so much fun cussing. Mm-hmm. Like, she has this like really thick southern drawl because it was all filmed in Atlanta, and they obviously just like cast a local. Uh, and you could tell she was just like chewing up those cuss words as much as they let her like get off the leash with them. Up your ass is where yeah. you can find it. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is is it does have like sort of a weird Christian energy. And I did think about the Thief in the Night series a couple of times during this movie. But the, the point that I thought about it the most was in the sequence where that same detective is attacked by the Kestrel in his car, causing him to blaze a trail of deadly mayhem yes! across the city. <laughs> like the Kestrel doesn't just attack and he runs off the road and dies like... A lot of people were horrifically injured during that. Yeah, hit the brakes, dude. That's what I There's was a bird thinking. in your face. Also, <laughs> like, at the end of this scene, not only have, like, several people been horrifically injured... Like, there's this whole group of, like, people playing baseball that are now scarred for life after trying to save him, and then his car sets fire. I'm like, what? That dude had a cruel and unusual death, for sure. And it went on forever. And it did make me think about how, unlike the Christian propaganda sort of of today, which is like cheap and hideous because they use cheap, hideous CGI, and unlike the Christian propaganda of like the apocalypse, tribulation, judgment, quadrilogy, they spent the money in those on actors, right? They were like, oh, let's get Marco Ketter, let's get Gary Busey. And so they they look kind of like movies because they have actors in them, but they don't function like movies. Whereas the A Thief in the Night movies, they look like movies and they act like movies. And they have really great sequences of like mayhem and destruction in them where there's always at least one big set piece where like somebody drives a car through a house or there's some sort of like, you know, five alarm fire. Because the people who made those had like been second unit and like props people on things like the blob right and i felt that a lot with this one that there was a lot of really great use of very inexpensive production value you know there are a couple of shots in that basketball game at the beginning where you know they have the full stands which is clearly taken from like some kind of b-roll or maybe from a real game and then they anytime that you see that the camera is actually like on the court you can kind of see at the edge of the frame, and a couple of times it's a little too obvious, that they've only filled one section of the bleachers. But it reminded me of um, <laughs> the Big Tall Wish episode of uh, The Twilight Zone. Because in The Twilight Zone Companion, they talk about how they really cheat to make it seem like there's a huge boxing match going on in that episode. When really you just see a lot of close-ups and there's a lot of implication. This movie does a lot of implication in that opening scene and it really shoots for the money so this movie looks amazing even if there are a lot of prolonged periods of time where i'm like what is happening yeah it still was cool and it's interesting because it does sort of borrow christian ideology but in a way that like no christian would actually find this movie entertaining or worth dealing with they would just be offended by it Yeah, because it gives a real sci-fi reason for a sequence of events that humans would have mythologized into a religion rather than it saying that any religion is accurate. Speaking of like what is going on, can we talk about what was going on on this like 
roof with the screens and strange men with shaved heads dancing behind them? Yeah, I don't know. What was going on? I liked it. But what was going on? I thought he was either like importing or cloning like a warrior army that's going to help him track this kid down and like corner her. Okay. Okay. I guess my larger question is not the logistics of that, but like, why is he so casual about letting her run loose for so long? Like John Houston shows up. He knows who the kid is. He knows where she is. He knows that she is Satan and he has to like bring her back to like reform her on his planet. <laughs> but like takes so casual of a time getting to stopping her. Like he's just like hanging around. He like babysits her for a night and plays Pong with her. And he's like yeah. creating these like Droog warriors on the uh on the rooftop. <laughs> and it's just like super casual about the whole thing. He's like not in a rush to like put a stop to her evil deeds. And then even at the end, like, the big triumphant, like, victory over her isn't this, like, giant battle. It's just, like, he, like, gives her therapy and a haircut. <laughs> and the movie just ends so calmly. Just, like, really laid back heroics. The one exception maybe is when he's on the, like, tarmac and does that, like, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like, conducting. He, like, orchestrates these, like, lights in the sky that scene made no literal sense to me, but I thought it was kind of fun. Where <laughs> he's just like making ridiculous faces and waving his hands like a conductor while this like musical light show plays on the tarmac and in the sky. It was a delight. Yeah. It was a delight. Absolutely listeners. unhinged. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, I don't regret watching this. Oh, not at all. A feast for the senses. Uh, not really, but like at the same time, like. Sometimes it's nice to have movies where you're just like totally puzzling out like this decision was made. And I think the other fascinating thing is like there's so much going on in this movie, but they spend so much time on filming her doing gymnastics, filming a basketball game, filming her ice skating. Like there's all of this like supernatural and like extraterrestrial stuff going down but we're just filming like sports they have to show us her powers ally she know, has I powers know. both natural and, and supernatural, supernatural. <laughs> they have to show us those natural powers i will say the gymnastic scene was the exact moment where i was like this is art like <laughs> i uh i had a lot of early attempts to pigeonhole this movie and like tell myself what it was mm -hmm. like it starts as this sort of like star wars knockoff where it looks like hodorowski's dune that never happened um, <laughs> and like it's on this alien planet and like he has this vision of this like satanic girl that sort of like appears out of the desert and then that psychedelic sequence immediately cuts to hodorowski's space jam where you get like oh just extended basketball <laughs> editing and then it cuts to that like omen and bad seed period where she's no longer representing this like satanic mutant spirit from another world. She like actually is just like a shitty little kid uh, and is like fun in her like rebuttal of authority figures. But after all that, I'm like trying to like say, okay, this is what the movie is. This is what the movie's doing. And then she has this like birthday party yeah. where someone gives her a gift and the gift is this like trinket bird this like super annoying bird <laughs> yeah it's got this annoying audio component but it's like a little peacock ornament and when she opens the gift the ornament transforms into a handgun and she yeah. tosses the handgun and it shoots her mother in the spine and at that moment i was like this movie can be anything like if any object can just transform into a different thing then like anything could happen in this movie and then the fallout of that gunshot to the spine that magical transformation is a lengthy scene of her mother's back surgery where she's basically declared crippled for life even though they save her life she's like never gonna walk again and they intercut that surgery sequence with the little girl doing gymnastics and yeah. that's the first time we ever see any gymnastics in the movie and it's like intensely switching back and forth between the surgery and the gymnastics without any like clear reasoning to why it's doing that and in that moment i was like this is pure art like this is like yeah. transcending any kind of limitations of like logic and is just like True cinema doing its own thing 
Yeah, and I was I was so into it at that point. Well, there is the match cut between sort of the paralysis bed rotation, right? Yeah, and her body spinning around the uneven bars. Like there's a there is a match cut, so it, it is sort of like even when her mother's not around, she's like rubbing in how <laughs> mobile she is. <laughs> okay, I buy that. <laughs> Yeah. No, but the, none of the police even seem to think it's weird that they're like, yeah, I mean, this little girl doesn't seem to be affected by her mother's paralysis at all. Honestly, she seems like it's made her life better. Ha ha. Will not investigate further. No further I questions. I also love the police trying to get to the truth of how that trinket transformed into a handgun. And he keeps like interviewing people and they're like, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. It was just a gun. <laughs> and, uh, like I yeah. bought a little bird and then the bird was a gun. And then uh, later in the movie, there's another scene where a bird just transforms into a knife midair. And you're like, this is the kind of world where a bird can also be a knife. And you just kind of have to accept that. (laughs) And I I really liked that chaos and logic. I I really appreciated that just sort of like limitless imagination. Kind of what we were talking about with Paprika last episode. Like anything can be anything. He moves in mysterious ways, Brandon. He moves in mysterious ways. (laughs) I guess the difference is that, like, this is way more laid back than Paprika. It feels, like, very, like, unrushed, you know? It's got that, like, kind of stony baloney 70s pacing. Yeah, like, we're going to take our time apprehending this demon child, and everything's weird. She's going to go to school with her friends. Let's chill. What's the rush? We'll get her eventually. We might uh, cause a few car accidents where motorcyclists go through the windshield along the way, but uh, all in all, it'll be worth it. We'll get her back on her home planet, and... We'll just come back for the next Satan child that pops up in that bloodline whenever that happens. It sort of seems to imply that this might be the last time because they say that her mother is the only person in this generation whose womb can bring to bear the potential. um, So was the gun a way of making her barren? uh, No, I think the gun was a way of making her... Oh, make her reliant. Paralyze her so that she was more reliant on their crony, Lance Henriksen. And also so that, like, she would be less resistant to, you know, I can't think of a nice way to put this, being impregnated against her will. Yeah, which, like, they already do it surgically. I don't see why they didn't just do it in the beginning when they did her surgery. I don't know. It's just like details of this movie that befuddle and also you just don't care about. You're like, I'm here for this ride. What did y'all think of that score? That reminded me of um, He-Man cartoons <laughs> and like other like triumphant like funk uh, 70s cartoon soundtracks. I kind of wanted like a morning bowl of cereal listening to that soundtrack. Every single time it started, I it sounds like the first seven bars of the and, oh god this is so absurd uh of the bbc 70s hitchhiker's guide show like the <laughs> oh, opening yeah. theme music for that where it's like that's a terrible uh, how a terrible bizarre is it that all three of us have seen that <laughs> <laughs> i've seen that entire series oh it's great it's art i was just fascinated by the way they uh, achieved the two heads with the one mannequin head on the guy's shoulder I wouldn't call it achieving, but it's it gets the job done. <laughs> Approximating? I don't know. Yeah, it approximates. It sure does that. <laughs> it fits with the vibe. I will say, like, I don't make a lot of like uh, New Year's resolution type things, but this movie um, invigorated me in like this is the energy I want to bring to these Lanyap episodes in 2022. Like, let's do it. The uh, yeah, the hitting shuffle on my like letterboxed watch list kind of thing, where I'm like, I'll just watch the first thing that's available that uh, I already knew that I kind of wanted to see. I went into this completely blind in that exact way. I uh, just didn't know where it was going from like minute to minute. I had no idea who made it. I could tell they were Italian. Just <laughs> yeah, based I was going to say uh, the score, the weird dubbing, the score, the weird <laughs> dubbing, the narrative leaps. Yeah. It turns out the writer also wrote this movie Madhouse we did a few months ago when we did movies about evil twins. And that movie is just as unhinged and like um, illogical from scene to scene. Uh, and it's also a hoot. <laughs> so I need to see more of his stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I was just invigorated by the sort of like endless creativity and like disregard for 
narrative logic in this one. So when you said that, I was like, oh, okay, so we can go off rambling however we choose in this new year. But no, really, you're just talking about viewing choices. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I'm not even saying like I want everyone to do this all the time. Yeah. But I was like, I wish I could bring something this uninhibited to the table every episode whenever it's my turn to select stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is like the height of what I'm trying to achieve when I like pick a movie to watch for myself. <laughs> yeah. Even though it has many faults. I'm not saying it's like perfect or anything. but uh... Sometimes perfect is not what you want. I mean, a lot of the time. Oh, I love mess. Yeah. And we found it. We did. Yeah, this is definitely a mess. It's such a mess. I love it. I had such a good time watching this movie. (laughs) Yeah. And I also am going to say, if Brandon, for sure, since you enjoyed this, and Allie, I think if you enjoyed this, I'm also going to recommend this to you. I just didn't. I don't know that you're already planning to watch it. You will love Deathly Games. Okay. The Christmas movie, it's on Shutter right now. Yeah, you skipped over that a little bit in the intro, but I think um, because it is Christmas week, if you want to like kind of pitch Deadly Games yeah. to the audience, uh, it's worth setting aside time for that. All right, audience. Imagine, if you will, <laughs> it's France. It's 1989. You're a seven-year-old boy who lives with his widowed mother and his diabetic grandfather in a castle. Your mother works at the Alprontant department store that's nearby, and it's Christmas Eve. Your friend tells you that there's no such thing as Santa Claus, and you decide to prove him wrong by pulling out your Minitel device and dialing in 3516 to talk to that Kris Kringle that you've been dreaming about. But, as it turns out, on the other end of the line, it's a creep. It's a creep who's figured out where you live, maybe. (laughs) So, Deadly Games is about a boy who is alone other than his, you know, grandfather uh who is much less competent than he is this is a kid who can uh fix a car drive a car do donuts he runs a mile through the snow uphill both ways to get insulin for his grandfather whenever he there's an emergency and he decides that he is going to use his tricked out security system at home to capture footage of santa but the man that he was talking to on the Minitel earlier in the day gets a job at Al Printemps through a series of events, manages to get aboard a van that is taking young Tomas's Christmas presents to him and then decides to play a game with Tomas. And this young boy will never be the same. It's so good. It's so funny at points because you're just laughing about how like, the seven-year-old boy is this ultimate Mary Sue character, right? Where he can do absolutely anything. And it's funny because he's like, he's driving a car. He doesn't like <laughs> that his mom is getting cuddly and cozy with her assistant at the department store. So because that guy picks up his mom for work, he decides to fix her car to like put the kibosh on this relationship, right? Like he's extremely competent. He has so much knowledge about the intricacies of interpersonal relationships and about technology and yet is still a child who believes in santa and when his mother tells him not to try and catch santa on christmas eve that it'll make santa mad and he'll turn into an ogre when a serial or a killer dressed as santa gets into the house he thinks it's his fault So not only (laughs) there's this additional emotional element where he thinks that Santa has become a killer because he was a bad boy. (laughs) Oh, no. It's so good. It's it's so funny. And yet also at times really dark and grim. And it sort of ping pongs back and forth between those two modes of being in a way that is incredibly entertaining. And there's never a dull moment. I have a question about that home invasion aspect because like the only thing i've ever heard about this movie is that it's like the hyper violent french film that home alone ripped off Eh. um but it sounds like from your description that the home invasion stuff comes pretty late in the runtime um it it does not come as late in the runtime as it does in home alone right because home alone they're sort of making multiple attempts to get into the house and then when they finally get in and he has all the traps that's sort of the climax The actual home invasion starts pretty early in this one. It's a very elegantly designed or an elegantly written script. It has a sort of elegance to the simplicity of the design of the narrative where, you know, his mother 
the boy thinks okay his mother is worried that he doesn't isn't going to believe in santa much longer because he has this friend but he's like no i can talk to santa on my minitel and he, she's like well give me the list anyway but then he still talks to santa on the minitel but that list becomes important because she hands it off to her assistant and he gets the christmas list fulfilled and is in the office talking to the delivery driver whenever the santa killer is waiting for his final paycheck and as a result, he's able to hop in the van. Like it's really elegantly constructed for like the first 30 minutes to really get all the pieces in place. And then as soon as act two starts is when the invasion begins. So it, it takes up the majority of the runtime of it much more so than home alone. There's more booby traps warfare in this one. There's not, it's, there's not as many booby traps. Okay. There are a few, <laughs> but like, it, don't go into that expecting it to be a huge part of the story like a synthesizer woman it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty small part of it overall there's a lot of just like him hiding it's more about trap doors and secret passages than it is about booby traps but like this is there's a point in this movie where this child breaks a chair and then like splints his own leg with it and then goes out and then he <laughs> The first thing that Santa does is kill his dog, right? That's the very first thing that Santa does that makes him realize that Brutal. Santa's bad. And at one point, this like child who has splinted his own leg and has like put Rambo war paint on in order to hide <laughs> gives his dog a burial and like builds him a cross. And it's like, what is happening? So big recommend for me. It's on Shutter under their Unhappy Holidays grouping. And the visitor is also on Shutter. And I guess with all the uh, Christian iconography, you could also yeah, you could... squint at it and call it a Christmas classic as well. <laughs> it's more of an Easter movie, I would think, but to each oh, their own. Oh, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I buy that. Do you think that the people like from Atlanta who are thanked at the beginning, like, do you think they even remember this movie? No way. For sure. They got to brag about the tax revenue they brought to town, and they never watched it. It's my guess of what the mayor of Atlanta thought of this film. Just, it seems, like, so, like, deliberate. Like, you don't see movies thanking places for letting you, like, film there anymore. Like, no. until, like, the very, very end in, like, fine print. So it's just, like, so deliberate and upfront. I think it's more rare for Hollywood production, not Hollywood, but, like, you know, bigger productions like this to film on location in like certain cities. Like Atlanta and New Orleans have been these like filming hubs a lot recently. Yeah. But it was more like an event at the time. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that it was just like so upfront. Like, thank you to oh, Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. They were way out in front with it because at one point we were talking about while viewing, watching it, the, the people I was watching it with, the, the thickness that you noted before of, <laughs> of the little girl's accent. It's so thick that it, <laughs> Matt thought it was fake. He was like, yeah, that's not a real accent. It's too thick. But uh, no, that's really just no. a real Georgia girl's accent. That's a real Georgia accent. Yeah. I guess we kind of assume those are fake sometimes because uh, in movies, anyone who's from anywhere in the Southeast region has like either that accent or the Alabama accent. Yeah. And we're all just sort of like lumped into that one category. I was going to say, there's so many regional accents and yet, yeah, they pick those two. The stereotype comes from somewhere. <laughs> That's where we just pinpointed it. Or from the Appalachians. Yeah. True, true. You don't get like the Delta accent or New Orleans at all, ever. <laughs> we get that Nolans, y'all. Yeah, uh, you get that. Or Chalmette. You don't get that Chalmette accent. I don't even have that Shelmet accent I grew up there. <laughs> <laughs> my sister does, though. I, I lost my Tennessee accent, and every day I'm sad about it. <laughs> I took mine out back and shot it. Rest in piss. Rest in piss. <laughs> like Boomer mentioned, you have two Christmas horror movie reviews up on the website this week, uh, and I will link those in the show notes. And I will probably write about The Innocents this week as well, because that was my version of Christmas time viewing. And for our final episode of the year on the podcast, uh, we recorded a sort of special episode. It's episode number 150 of the uh, regular podcast episodes. Woo! And we talked about short films, which uh, is something we never really discuss um, as like a topic. We, we each picked two short films. I mean, they ended up 
kind of covering the entire history of cinema. That's from, awesome. Like, the early 1900s until last year. Wow, you like love the regular podcast, Korea. Like love that. <laughs> On those episodes, I always billboard what we do on these as well. <laughs> no, I know. I listen to them. I was going to say, I like those episodes. But they're not as good as these. Okay. All right. I accept We're not that watching break. The Visitor. <laughs> I don't listen to our episodes. Sorry, guys. I can't listen to the sound of my own voice. But it's good to hear that these are good. <laughs> I don't do that right away. I don't listen to it the same week. But I usually listen to it eventually. In fact, there was... One time I was listening to our uh, discussion of the cult movie, Brandon, The Lamb, The Other Lamb, Other Lamb. And you said something and I immediately made the same little joke in like the present <laughs> that I immediately said on the podcast. I was like, God, I'm nothing if not consistent. Podbot. <laughs> All right. And everyone, that's a Merry Christmas and Happy Honda Days for me. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary ultra emissaries. We've been observing your earth. And one night we'll make a contact with you. Give us a sign.